This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. Today we're talking about a topic that you might remember from our channel, from the from our fall 1920 episodes. Today we're talking about Fiume and a certain Italian poet with a bad breath who still seemed to have been a womanizer. Who knows? Stranger things have happened, I guess. But yes, uh, Fiume slash Rijeka, I suppose, for all of our Croatian listeners out there. It's a topic we even covered in one of the first episodes that I hosted back in April 1919 when we talked about that crisis at the Paris Peace Conference um, early on. But yes, we're talking about the Fiume crisis. That is the name of the book. And the author, Dominic Rael, has taken a bit of a different approach. One thing that I think often gets lost in the discussion of Fiume and sort of the international diplomatic situation that it unleashed and then this bombastic figure of Danunzio running around spouting all sorts of catchy nationalist things and inspiring Mussolini and blah, blah, blah. One thing that kind of gets lost is what about the regular Joes and Janes, right? The people living in Fiume, whether they were Italian speakers or Croatian speakers, Slovenian speakers, or some mixture, how are they living this whole thing? What do they want? You know, what are they collectively trying to achieve? And interestingly enough, according to Rael, this has to do, to some extent, with the old Habsburg Empire. And that was the angle that I found most interesting about this. I generally found it interesting because I've been to Fiume, or Rijeka, how it's now called. Um, I have a few friends uh, who live close by. Uh, the grandfather of a friend of mine said uh, he uh, found it pretty funny that he used to always live in the same house all his life but for some reason he has four different passports now in his drawer and that's the story <laughs> of the 20th century in a nutshell i want to see the austro-hungarian passport because i'm sure it looked cool yeah it probably does so uh yeah enjoy the interview and if you want to ask the world-class historians that we regularly interview on this podcast any questions, how can you do that, Jesse? Well, uh, there's an easy way. You can become a podcast, a podcast supporter. You can become a Patreon supporter of the Great War Channel. And that is what will get you on the question list. So we appreciate your support. None of this would be happening without it to all of you who are currently patrons and to those of you who are thinking about it, 
check it out. Click on the link. Uh, we do give back to our patrons in many different ways. Uh, we appreciate the support. We certainly do. So here is the interview with Dominique Reil. All right. So as usual, I'm very happy to welcome our next guest to the podcast in particular because she has worked on a side of a question that I wasn't as familiar with as I would have liked to have been before having um, gotten my hands on her book. We have with us today Dr. Dominique Kirchner-Reil, who is an associate professor in modern European history at the University of Miami, even though she's not there right now. And uh, she's also the author of The Fiume Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire. So I'm happy to have anything to do with the Habsburg Empire. And I'm glad to have you on the show today, uh, Dominique. Thanks for joining us. All right. Let us jump in with the usual, the traditional question that we start things off with. And that's kind of your Fiume crisis origin story. How did you end up uh, getting into the topic of Fiume? And when you were planning and writing this book, what did you think that you could add to the kind of story of the Fiume crisis that many of us are more familiar with? Um, so Fiume, if you study uh, Croatian or Italian history, is very, very famous. This this moment after World War One, D'Annunzio, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So it's something I've, I've known about since I was a, at least an undergraduate, maybe even before, conscious memory of when I first learned about this story. But I did work on a book before this um, that was based on research in Dalmatia and in Trieste and in Venice. And I, I worked a little in Fiume, not very much for that first book. So I, I, I went through the town quite a bit and I've read about the town quite a bit. And the more that you learn about the Adriatic, um, its longer history, um, not just, you know, from the Venetian Republic or early modern, but even 19th century, the, the more you think of the Adriatic as a space of many different cultures coming together, maybe well, maybe poorly, but that it is not a homogenous space. It's not a one culture story. The Fiume story is usually told in terms of charismatic nationalism and in, in this idea of people following a leader, even if the leader might be pushing for things that don't make much sense. In fact, the more it makes less sense, the more the charisma must be strong. And the story is always about Italian nationalism and Italian fiume. And this, this moment where we see the beginnings of what many historians have called proto-fascism, where you see this kind of combination of a charismatic leader a disgruntled populace and a, a movement. And that's how Fiume has traditionally been told after World War I. But what if over half of the town doesn't consider itself Italian? And what if maybe a lot of people, they might have spoken Italian, but they definitely couldn't understand someone like highfalutin, uh, Dante quoting uh, Gabriele D'Annunzio, who was also spending a lot of his time talking badly about the Habsburg army, soldiers, the war, and people who were of Slavic origin, where the town of Fiume was made up of many sons and fathers 
who had fought <laughs> for the Habsburg Empire in World War I and over half the town that did not identify as Italian and almost 40% of the town that, and this isn't even counting the outskirts, who identified as these self-same Slavs. So the minute you get to know the Adriatic better, or at least that's what happened to me, is the more you realize this Hume story is doesn't make any sense. So I started the book more out of a, a, a frustration of this continued reliance on this vision of a populace ready to follow a leader where the populace seemed to have been erased out of the story. So that's why I started the book. All right. And that, in a nutshell, is uh, the reason why I found the book so interesting. Uh, because the focus is largely on the people in the town who, yeah, really don't get a ton of press and full disclosure, didn't get a ton of press in the episode that we ourselves did on the Great War Channel either, which came out in uh, November. So what do the people in the town and in the little surrounding area that were part of this uh, semi-autonomous Habsburg zone, what did they think of Denunzio and his idea of unifying with Italy and where, where did their political sort of loyalties lie, uh, so to speak? Well, it's, you know, who's the they is always a problem that historians have, you know, the they is the, the question, right? Um, and to answer it, I guess the first answer is Fiume is not like many historical towns in Europe or that have a long tradition of, of this uh, strong municipalism. They have a long tradition of a, a certain kind of preferred status, legal stat status as a free city. But the city itself in the 30 years before World War I grew by 60%. And it didn't grow because people were really in love. It grew because um, it was a boom town. It was a boom town related to the Suez Canal. It was a boom town related to the steamship industry. It was boom town related to globalization. And the people that moved there were from all over, not just all over the Habsburg Empire, but also from other countries, such as the Kingdom of Italy and uh, the Greater Balkans. So the people who had come to the town in the last 30 years came there not out of identity politics, but out of economic need or interest. Uh, not just rich people trying to make money on uh, creating businesses for a global future, but also for poor people looking for a job. So when we're talking about the they and what did they think, what's really important is to think of it as what is a boom town? It's, it's all sorts of people of, of different political backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, all there for some kind of common purpose of making good. So when, when I started uncovering more and more about Fiume, what I, what I learned, and then I found it also in other historians of the town, is this kind of strange overlap between different political visions like socialism or liberalism, um, national, Republican nationalism, monarchism, conservatism, all of that exists in Fiume, like all of the rest of Europe. But that there is a common thread to keep the economic privileges that brought everyone there in the first place. So strangely enough, and there's a wonderful uh, young historian from 
Rijeka, which is the name of the town today, Ivan Yelichich, who's worked on the socialists in the town before the war and after, and shown that they strangely have overlapping political goals with the liberals and the conservatives of keeping Fiume in a special place economically and politically on the empire. So if what they want, the they, is if there can be one common sense, it's to make sure they stay vibrant, to make sure they don't get overshadowed by the other ports in the Adriatic and the greater Mediterranean, and that they continue to have a privileged position to give them what they came there for in the first place, jobs and a future. All politics is local, as they say, I guess, uh, in a way. Um, now, in terms of time, Usually, the story of Fiume is kind of part of the origin story of fascism, this emphasis on proto-fascists, which we have in the title of our episode about Fiume as well. Um, what is the connection here? And well, what is the connection in the sense that how do you assess that connection then? Why do you think it's been so strong? I mean, you've already sort of said that you question it, let's say, uh, for lack of a better word. Why do you think it's been so strong? And what holes do you think can possibly be poked in it? Well, I mean, I, what I think is really important is to remember there's, there's different ways of looking at history, right? There's the history of trying to explain your problem. And then there's the history of trying to understand why things happened. The problem of explaining fascism, no one should ever cut the Fiume fascism story. There is, no, there is no way to do that, not just because many of the people who went to Fiume then later became fascists, but also the fascist party, which was forming itself at that time, it was in no way as popular as, or as successful as it later became. But at that time, Mussolini was in contact with D'Annunzio He came to Fiume. Many of his followers did. He sent money to it. So they are interrelated histories. And there is no doubt that the success of D'Annunzio and Fiume served as a model of how to anchor populist nationalism and anger about World War I behind a politics of upending uh, the, the status quo. So if your problem is explaining all the steps that take you to the March on Rome, I think that Fiume needs to be in that story, but only told that way in terms of Italian history. But Fiume, Tenerieca, was not part of Italy. And there were far more people who lived in the town than Italians who went to follow D'Annunzio to go to the town. And so how is it that D'Annunzio and his followers got to take over the story? What were the forces that made sure that they could be the only people you talk about with Fiume? And so instead of saying Fiume isn't important for, for fascism, that's not true. It is important for fascism. But how is it possible that over 50,000 people, especially if you add the, the, the hinterlands, probably around 70,000 people, kind of absent themselves or get absented in this period. If you look at what happens with the Freikla in Eastern Europe, in the Baltics, the story is not just about the guys. It's about what they do to the people, about the rage. It's about the fire. It's about the, the untold violence of paramilitary 
movements after World War One. But what's really fascinating about thinking about fascism in Fiume is that the reason why it makes such a great um, kind of uh, story to get into fascism is how unviolent it is. It's, I think it's precisely because the town disappears that it made fascism feel and look less violent than if we looked at the history of fascism from Emilia Romagna or from Piedmont or from Lombardy or from Veneto or from Trieste, it's a history of violence. When you, when you make Fiume the, the origin story of fascism, it's a history of politics, populism, nationalism. So that's just to answer it. So I wanted to figure out what were the forces that allowed the fascism story to be the only story. And I think that the locals had, they weren't overtaken they were part of making it the only story, um, of making populist nationalism the story of the post-war. So I want to take up a strand of one of those other stories because uh, this one also caught my attention. One other aspect of the Fiume crisis that's received some attention is this idea of Fiume is kind of an, an odd petri dish in a way of, uh, of political thought going on. You mentioned a whole bunch of different strands on the one side of the spectrum, but there were, of course, others as well. And it's been called a kind of a cultural revolution type atmosphere. I even have read a couple of references to, you know, some very creative uh, parallels to Woodstock, you know, Woodstock with less music and more politics and so on. Um, can you explain what's going on here i mean with there's things like cocaine comes up quite a bit openly gay officers commanding uh anarchists what the heck is going on underneath the surfaces well uh you know danuncio and his followers did not expect to be in the town for 15 months they thought they were going for a couple weeks and everything would fall apart. Who really cared about this town enough to uh, paralyze the Paris peace treaties around it? Who really cared about this town enough to, 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 uh, to risk two Italian governments falling because of it? Who really cared about this town enough? It was 50,000 people. It was an important town geopolitically um, because it was a port related to import to, to some of the only railways going into the Balkans and Eastern Europe from the Mediterranean. But it, 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 in terms of the larger what's going on in the world, you know, Fiume is not the most important thing. So I, I don't think it was irrational of Danuzio and his followers to assume it would just need a little show and it, and it would happen. And then it would serve as a kind of domino effect of showing that that stodgy parliamentarians and diplomats in Paris don't determine the world. People do. This was the goal of going to Fiume. But then they get stuck there because they guessed wrong. Uh, actually, the Paris Peace Treaty did stall around it and no one was willing to give up. And that was partially Woodrow Wilson. But one way or the other, it kind of became a game of chicken of who's going to give up first. And so they're they're in this town and more and more people start coming in November and December 1919, I think, is the highest point of the number of people that come from Italy to follow the moon. I don't trust any of the numbers of how many people were really there, but over that, you know, several thousand Italians went at least in November. And they have to, A, keep everyone busy, 
keep morale up and stay in the news so they don't forget. And so what happens is this kind of bubble effect in the town in which you have these guys, and they're mostly men, though there are women, who are there to change the world. They're not really sure what they want to change it into. Some of them just want to be protagonists in history. Others of them actually are free thinkers and want to do all this stuff. And they, they, they're kind of parasites on the town, right? They're, they're just kind of living there as the conquerors that were invited in and they didn't have to kill anyone to come. And so what you get is um, very interesting people kind of bored with lots of time on their hands and no one, no rules and no one telling them what to do. And, and so you do have an outpouring of, of different kinds of energies. You have monarchists and conservatives, you have military men who are doing their marches and trying to make everybody all serious, but at the same time, you have someone like Guido Kella, who I'm sure you have in your documentary, who's probably the most interesting figure. He was an ace pilot during World War One, and he really was the closest we have to a libertarian in the truest sense. You know, he was, let's say he was gender fluid. <laughs> I, I, some people say he was homosexual. I think he was everything. Um, he was a nudist. He did believe in this going back to nature and the corruption of civil civil society. You have Bon Vivant, a cosmopolitan philosopher, poet, artist who are excited about this idea of making a whole new world with a poet as the leader. Um, and and you have people who aren't just Italian there either. So so you and a lot of these people um, are not just there. They're given a lot of news time in order to keep Fiume in the news, in order to get people to keep on coming. Uh, you, you have someone like uh, Michael, the inventor of uh, you know, Telegraph, who comes. You have Toscanini, who comes. You have Marinetti, the head of the Futurists, who come. And so it becomes this kind of uh, not just a bubble where anything can be tried out. You said Petri dish. Um, but it also becomes this media fest of a revolution where I don't think we should take too seriously how much happens unless we admit that people go there because they know they're going to get some airtime. Um, it's, it's not, none of it is an accident. The thing that's most fascinating about it, and I think for Italian history, especially important, is the variety it's not one movement. It's not a bunch of nudists. It's also a bunch of conservatives. It's not a bunch of socialists or anarchists who are there as well. It's also, uh, you know, high, highfalutin dandies. It's, it's anything and everything at the same time, mostly because no one's really in charge and, and it's unclear what the future is going to be. So it's a, it's a really wonderful, and there's a great book by Claudia Salaris, if anyone knows Italian called uh, the, the La Festa della de Rivoluzione, the, the Festival of the Revolution, in which you get a taste of the enormous variety of, of post-World War I experimentalism. But I, I, what I really want people to remember is it's also there because it's news. It, that none of this is not related to the media. Yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating... Uh side of things that doesn't come out in a lot of those meta narratives where we try to anchor Fiume in that grander story of 20th century and so on and so forth. Um, but quite an interesting one. So Woodstock, and this is something you're right, it's brought up often. It was brought up in the late 60s, early 70s for the first time. 
in order to get people who understood what Woodstock meant for this new generation in the late 60s and 70s to understand this new generation of the post-war. But unlike Woodstock, which was to go out to some farmland and separate yourself from society in order to live something you're not supposed to, going to Fiume was to make sure you, you were part of it. It was a way, I mean, people, what I find fascinating of these Italians who go to Fiume, they're already collecting stamps and pictures of themselves as it's happening, because going there is about being part of history. They were not just doing it for a sense of the current media and the contemporary media. There was a vision because it was Denuncio and because of the Paris Peace Treaty. And Fiume had already been in the news for a year before Denuncio got there that this was already historic. And so it was a way to make all these threads part of history too. So how, my, my brief follow-up question here is, I mean, these groups sounds like they're so varied that they would not be capable of having dinner at the same table. How did they coexist in the city without tearing each other's throats out for, for the time that, that they were there? Well, they did. I mean, I, they all went to different restaurants and they, 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 a lot of them would switch battalions or whatever, wherever they were supposed to sleep in order to put themselves in the right side. Um, there were no enforced uniforms. So people used how they dressed as a way to kind of signi signify what stand they took on all this. And a lot of people left, a lot of people left a lot. So you, you have, Again, I don't write this history because it's so covered and there's so many books on this. So if, if people are interested in learning on this, there's so many works that follow the legionnaires, the Nuncio's uh, followers. But it's hard to follow the legionnaires because they're always leaving and coming. And each wave of people leaving and coming is a different you know, subsector of but this is about monarchism or this is about that. So the reason why I find it very difficult to give a number of how many people are there is because it's a it's a revolving door of different people going to Fiume for different reasons and leaving for different reasons. And when they're all there, maybe at the table at the same time, there's a lot of beating each other. I mean, in some ways, the violence they they put, they, they do enact violence against the local community, um, especially against Croatians. Uh, you know, closing stores, raiding, not that much, not as much as you would expect, but definitely there. But they also are violent against each other <laughs> for precisely what you. Um, okay. Now I want to return to the title for a moment uh, of the book, because the second part of it is quite interesting to me, right? So the Fiume crisis, but life in the wake of the Habsburg empire. Now, usually, as we've sort of discussed, Fiume is kind of a starting point for how the story is told, or often in many ways, right? It's about explaining what comes after it. But of course, the Habsburg Empire comes before it, and it plays a very prominent role in the kind of questions that you are asking and, and attempting to answer in the book. So what is this connection? What is this relationship with the legacy of empire and imperial structures and then what happens in Fiume after the armistice? Um, well, so I didn't know what the answer to the started. I just had the question of how, what? This isn't an Italian town. So how is it the, the, the firebrand of Italian nationalism? 
Um, and then in doing the research, what I started finding was all of these different um, central, central pedal forces, not central fugal forces, to keep the town together, to get it from not revolting. You know, you asked the question about how, what kept all these legionnaires from killing each other. Well, my question was what kept the town from killing each other or, or killing Danunzio or Danunzio killing them? Why is there so little violence in the story and why is there no revolution? Again, there's a lot of workers in this town and the Russian Revolution is going on. So what I found was all of these sneaky things going on on base levels of how do states work. And what I, what I found in terms of money, in terms of law, in terms of citizenship, in terms of education, in terms of city propaganda of what it is, is making things look Italian but keeping things very similar to how they were before. And so in some ways, I saw the silence of Fiume that the, making the stage for D'Annunzio as a, as, as, as a product of the Habsburg monarchy in terms of how you make a city work and how do you keep it going with all these disparate elements was used to keep the city going in this battle for annexation to Italy, which sounds really strange, but just to, to give you a, a sense of this, they, they changed the law codes uh, in order uh, to, you know, laws are important, especially in a time of confusion, chaos, and a state has disappeared. And instead of, uh, and, and if you have a government that's saying we want to be annexed to Italy, you would assume well, what they're going to do is just take the Italian will just start being Italian. Well, they called their law code Italy, but they didn't do that. They actually kept the old law code, the Habsburg one, and just made some changes here and there and kept things more or less the same. The same goes for citizenship. If you think about nationalism and after World War I, you would assume that what they did is they just made everyone who was Italian in Fiume a national and everyone who wasn't a foreigner. But that's not what they did. They kept the Heimatrecht, this, this strange, I, I use the word pertinency because it's easier for English-speaking audiences, this strange Habsburg category that is in between residency and citizenship. And they make that the new rules of citizenship. So instead of using an Italian model of citizenship or a nationalist model of citizenship, they use a Habsburg model in order to keep the town together. So instead of thinking about the history of this moment and this crazy media fracas as one of the charismatic leader, what I found was um, a continued practice of Habsburg models, Habsburg visions of law and order um, that very hard to pull off because this is a town of 50,000 people that's supposed to be, you know, supplanting an empire. But even where it's not, doesn't have the force or authority to make things work, even people on the ground in their illegalities working along Habsburg system. So I see the story as, as a Habsburg world that doesn't know what the future is going to be. And in order to avoid chaos and try and survive and thrive as best as possible is actually replicating the empire from below without a metropole pushing it on it. So the Habsburg empire without Vienna or Budapest making it be the empire. Yeah, I think one of the phrases that stuck with me was uh, sort of recreate the empire in the guise of the nation. And that, I thought, uh, says a lot about the layers of the, the onion skin that are, that are uh, required to be unpeeled here. So maybe um, as we 
get to what may be the last question here. Let's try for a bit of a comparison. I guess in some ways Fiumi sounds kind of a bit unique, but it's not the only place that sees, you know, collapse of empire in Central and Eastern Europe. It's kind of across the board. What stick out to you among the comparative elements? How is it similar to what's going on uh, elsewhere in terms of the experience of the people there? And how is it different? It's the smallest successor state of the Habsburg Empire. So it's, it's both absolutely the same as what's going on everywhere else and completely different. So what's the same is a world. The, I, I don't know if uh, your, your, your listeners or your viewers ever think about how strange the word dissolution is. It's, it's the word that's constantly used in English for describing the fall of the Habsburg monarchy. But it's not. They, why don't they use fall or, or break or uh, you know, they use dissolution? And I think it's a perfect word, but it's such a strange one because no one planned it. <laughs> you know, it's not the Russian Revolution. Uh, it wasn't toppled down. There were definitely national committees for many of the successor states pushing for the end of it. And there were many, many movements pushing for the end of it. But that's not why it ended. It ended from the top, not from the bottom. And so this moment where all of a sudden in one day, in different days throughout the Habsburg Empire, the other reason, there's no date. Uh, Peter Judson makes this point beautifully in his book uh, on the Habsburg Empire, is there's no one day where it stops being because it stops being in all different places in all different times when just people just walk up and leave, go away. And why is Fiume a common story to all of the post-Hapsburg lands? And I would even argue most of the post-imperial lands um, after World War I is that what, <laughs> what do you do the next day? Uh, if this wasn't a movement of, of revolution, but one of supplanting something that dissolved out of nowhere, no one knew what was going to happen. What are the day-to-day -day pragmatic solutions you give to the state no longer existing? How do you do it? And so I wrote this book in a way that, that makes Fiume more of a case than a story in and of itself to raise some questions about how do you tell the history of Poland or future Yugoslavia, where in Poland, three different empires, three different currencies, three different law codes push together. No one knows what the borders are going to be. Discussions ad nauseum, uh, uh, ethnic and linguistic diversity up the wazoo. How do you go from day to day? And so the book, I wrote it in a way it's more, more to use Fiume as, as just an indicator to start raising some big questions on what's happening in Czechoslovakia, two different states, two different law codes, uh, two different norms of education and practice what, how do you do things put together in one state all of a sudden? Uh, this is happening everywhere. Romania, Czechoslovakia, uh, in, in Hungary and in Austria, a little different because they're instead of expanding, they're getting smaller. But in the rest of the successor states, you have these many systems moved into one that is very similar to Fiume trying to move the Italian system into its Habsburg system or the Habsburg system into the Italian system. So it's very similar. What makes it very different is it's a town that's a state. It's also unlike Danzig, and people usually compare it with Danzig, Gdansk. Um, it was between two victors of World War I, not two losers of World War I. So unlike Germany and Poland, who are both, you know, 
Poland is a new state, but all the parts of Poland were the loser states. Um, Fiume is between you know, the Serb-dominated kingdom of Serb Croats and Slovenes, which was an Entente power, and Italy, which was also an Entente power. So you have a situation in which it's it's between two supposed allies, and it's already semi-autonomous. So it already has a structure of functioning uh, a little bit on its own. It's not completely autonomous. So it is, you know, it doesn't make its own money before. It doesn't make its own laws before. But it definitely has already an internal structure of working kind of in itself. So, so that makes it different. And it's also a town instead of, you know, millions of people. All right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen out there uh, listening to us. If you thought you knew the Fiume story, if you haven't read Dominique Rael, I can assure you there's stuff in there you don't know. So for those of, yeah, for those of you out there who uh, are now interested and want to get your hands on the book to get more into the topics that we discussed today, the book is called The Fiume Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire. And we are going to put up a couple of links where people can get their, can get their hands on the book in the description beneath the podcast when it goes online. So Dominique, I really want to thank you for taking the time today to talk to us. It was absolutely fascinating and really revealed to me how much more reading I've got to do on Fiume. Oh, thank you. It was fun. All right.